And now, if you have children between the ages of four and six, you may send them to children's worship training, where they will learn more about corporate worship and how to worship the Lord, not just individually, but as a part of a greater body. The children are also welcome to remain here with you if you desire. As we all turn together to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is in the first third of the Old Testament. It is in the section on the historical books about the kingdom of Israel. After the five books of Moses and the book of Joshua and Judges, but before... Kings and Chronicles. We'll be looking this morning at chapter 14, which is a story of Jonathan and his father Saul. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 14, from verse 1 through to verse 46. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to the young man who carried his armor. Saul said to him, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gebeah in the pomegranate cave in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Seneth. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming up out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. 
And the first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all of the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found? For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar he had built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. 
But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, The Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If the guilt is in me or my son Jonathan, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. Let me die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word you have given to us, and we pray that you would use it even today in our lives, that it would take deep root, that it would encourage us to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would trust in him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What is faith? Have you asked yourself that question? Have you thought about what faith means to you? Does faith mean being absolutely sure of everything? Is there any room for doubt in faith? This morning, we see the story of two men, Jonathan and Saul, and how they react to circumstances. And in their reaction to circumstances, we learn from the Lord our God, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, That faith is not about being certain of circumstances, events, and outcomes. Faith is being certain about God. And that's an important distinction. Because far too often we think that to have strong faith, we must never wonder or have any level of concern about our lives or the circumstances that we are in. But the truth is, circumstances change. Events come to us from every direction. And the only place where we can be sure and certain is in knowing who God is and His character. So this morning, I would like us to see three things from this chapter. First, we see the reality of life. And then second, we see the fearlessness of faith. 
in the actions of Jonathan. And then we see the foolishness of formality in the actions of Saul. The reality of life, the fearlessness of faith, and the foolishness of formality. Let's begin then by looking at the reality of life as this chapter opens up. Now, if you have been with us for this series in 1 Samuel, you will notice this is starting to become a broken record. We begin a chapter, we begin discussing it, and there is some form of problem, difficulty, persecution coming on Israel. Once again, the Israelites are in trouble. We've seen it over and over again. We've seen bad priests. We've seen conflict with the Philistines. We've seen the loss of the ark. The Philistines attack. The trouble over desiring a king. War with the Ammonites. And now again, war is before us. Once again, there is trouble before Israel. Now, this is actually one of the places where the Bible is most helpful to us. Not that we experience the same troubles and difficulties that the Israelites do. I'm not expecting the Ammonites to ride in and attack us this morning. But the truth is, we experience problems. That's the way life is. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches. The Bible does not describe the Christian life as being one of rosy perfection. The Bible tells us that we will face challenges, difficulties, trying circumstances. And so Israel here has struggled from one problem to the next. Sometimes it was their reaction to a problem that caused another problem. Like when war was on their border and they asked for a king. So this is the reality of life. This is a good deal of our lives, isn't it? I don't know about you, but as I look at the world, I see that it is not a place made by fairy tales. Now, the problem is we do tend to live in a time in which we think everything should go our way, right? The age of consumerism where we can go from one place to the other whenever we want to get something to our liking. There are so many choices before us. In all of the aspects of life, things to eat, things to drink, places to live, places to go. A hundred or two hundred or three hundred years ago, this would have baffled people. All the panoply of choices. You've even seen it in advertising plays up to our bent in this. You can have it your way. You should get this. You deserve it. You see, we expect things to go exactly like we want. But the reality of life is very different, isn't it? I hate to disabuse you of the notion, but money actually does not grow on trees. Now, I do realize that most of us, all of us, are blessed with many things that the Lord has given to us. But at the same time, there always are constant financial pressures aren't there? You know, when you first get married and you start a young family, you try to make sure that you have enough money to do the things that you need, provide for young children. It's amazing how expensive babies can be. And then you just start to get out of that stage and you think, I'm finally going to make it, and the financial pressure looming in front of you of college tuition hits you. 
And then as you finally get all of the kids graduated and you say to yourself, I'm going to give myself a raise, you realize that you needed to be saving for retirement. And you're behind on that. You see, there's always pressure there because that's how the world is. Things happen to us. We get sick. We have medical costs. We buy things we need and they break and we have to replace them. Every day brings a new challenge or a problem. You know that just from going to work or going to school. Every day is hard. Even our relationships are stressful and take work, don't they? For those of you that have been married more than a few years, you know this full and well. You don't spend your married life looking at each other, making goo-goo eyes. No, you have to work at your relationship. You have to listen to one another. You have to work with one another. You have to provide for one another. Relationships take work. Because you see, this is life in a fallen world. And this is normal after a fashion. It's not the way the world was created, but it is the world that all of us live in. And we need to think about how we will deal with these problems. And another reality of life is that there are two ways that we can deal with this. There are two options before us. And this chapter lays out the contrast. We've been introduced to Jonathan, Saul's son, recently. And now here we will see that he really is different from his father. We'll see just how much he is different from Saul. Now, does that mean that I expect you to go home and look at every situation in your life and say, Oh, am I a Jonathan? Oh, am I a Saul? No. What I am saying to you is there are two ways of dealing with all of your problems. And you need to decide how you are going to face circumstances. The first example is that of Jonathan himself. Now, it's important to remember that Jonathan in this story is not in better circumstances than Saul. He's in exactly the same place. All of the problems from chapter 13 affect Jonathan just as much as they affect Saul. But what we do see is that Jonathan... refuses to be a victim of his circumstances. He will not just complain and give up. But that also does not mean that Jonathan is in complete control. It would be a mistake to think that. Jonathan is committing himself and his circumstances to the Lord. The second example we have is that of Saul. Now, Saul is typical of so many of us when we are in troubles. He's seen his hopes slide down. He's seen his problems pile up. And so his approach is to be down in the dumps. It's to be disengaged from his circumstances. And so what we see in verse 2 is we see that Saul is taking no initiative at all. He's actually, what the geography is describing for us is, he's moving further away from the battle. He is Concerned about the Philistines, so he holds up in Geba. And then, it's not enough to just stay in the camp. He pulls back, and he's literally sitting under a tree. Hoping the problem will just go away. Saul is consumed with his circumstances. And right now, that makes him inactive. Later, it will make him obsess about his circumstances. 
Because the truth is there are only two ways to face the world. Faith or faithlessness. Let's look at faith first. Faith is fearless. Faith dares. We see this in Jonathan. Jonathan is ready to act right from the beginning, right from verse 1. He says to his armor bearer, Come, let's go up to the Philistines. Let's see what we can do. There's in the background here, even though he doesn't say it, I don't want to just sit around doing nothing. Who knows if my dad's ever going to take any action. Let's see what we could do. Let's see if we could take an advantage. Now, this is in contrast to everyone and everything that is around Jonathan. This place of encampment has been chosen to create this stalemate. It's a place, we understand from the description, where there are two large rocks dividing a ravine, making it very difficult for large armies to go across and attack each other. And these two big rocks, we are told, are named Bozes and Seneth. Now you may wonder, why does the Bible name the rocks? I don't understand that. Maybe you'll understand if instead of using the Hebrew, I give you the English. The one big large rock is slippery. The other big large rock is thorny. Does that give you an idea? It's not a place you'd like to go camping. You would not go on a trail hike here. You wouldn't want to be trail hiking up slippery and fall on thorny. So what causes Jonathan to act? Now, it's not the circumstances. He doesn't even tell Saul that he's going to go. The circumstances that are around Jonathan aren't exactly optimistic. Remember, there's only 600 Israelites. And remember all the swarming Philistines? But the second thing it's not is it's not like it's strong leadership. You remember that Saul is where he is because God has abandoned him. God has rejected him from being king. Samuel has left the encampment. And then we learn something in verse 3 that makes us even more concerned. There is someone with Saul. It's a priest. So far, so good. But then we find out his name is Ahijah. And we find out that he's a relative of Ichabod. That is old glory be gone. Who is related to Phinehas. The wicked son of Eli. That the Lord had taken the priesthood away from his family. So we have a rejected king with a rejected priest leading Israel. This is not exactly optimism. But what Jonathan has is a simple conviction. It's a simple conviction you and I can have in our own lives, and we see it in verse 6. He says to his armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And here is the conviction. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. You see, Jonathan understands the character of God. Nothing can hinder him. I don't care how many Philistines there are. I don't care if they're slippery or thorny. I don't care if dad is out to lunch. Nothing can stop God. Do you have that conviction in your life? Because as soon as you do, all of your problems do not go away, but they are immediately put into perspective. 
You're able to deal with them because you know God. Jonathan also knows how God can work. He says he can work by many or he can work by few. And this is something he would have known from the history of Israel. The great army of Israel under Joshua had conquered the land. But the judge Gideon had brought a large army to defeat his enemies. And God said, this army's too big. Send people home. And then after they were sent home, God said, the army's still too big. Go to the river so we can find out how small we can make this band. And the army that Gideon had was smaller than the 600 that Saul has. And God brought about the victory. The greatest work of salvation that God has ever done was done by one. By one man on a cross. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Without fanfare, without pomp or circumstance, the Lord Jesus Christ saved his people through his work on the cross. Nothing will stop God from saving, whether by many or by few. And having this conviction, Jonathan then has a great expectation produced. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Some of you may have heard of the motto of William Carey, the founder of modern missions. In those days, missionaries didn't get support and prayed over and get sent out. In those days, the church told missionaries, you're wasting your time. If God wants to save those people, he can do it. You don't need to go. And Carey's thought was, I expect such great things of my God. I serve such a great God that I will attempt great things for God. You see, knowing who God is raises in us the expectation to see God work in our midst. That's what faith is. It doesn't look to circumstances. It looks to God. Faith realizes that deliverance depends on God alone and not on any human effort. And so if God was pleased to use Jonathan, it didn't matter what the circumstances were. But you have to understand here that faith acts when the outcome is not certain. Often we think that faith requires an absolute certainty of the outcome of events. There are some of us that would read this passage and say, Jonathan doesn't have much faith. If Jonathan had faith, he would tell his armor bearer, we're going to go over there and God's going to be for us and we're going to be win. That's not what Jonathan says, is it? He says, God can. I don't know if he will. Let's see if he will. That's a distinct way to look at life. Because you see, faith is not about the certainty of events. Faith is certainty in God. If we are dwelling upon the certainty of events, that's not faith, that's pride. What that says is God is all powerful and all mighty. And he does whatever I tell him to do. He's my servant. Come on, God, do what I ask you to do. Real faith says God is almighty and all powerful and he will do what he wants to do. Your will, not my will, be done. You see, that's real faith. And so you are free 
to not be certain of what the outcome of events are, but to know for certain that God will not abandon you. And what that allows you is, when things don't work out the way you want them to, God is not falling asleep on the job. God is not weak. God is not a failure. God has done what he has determined to do. And you can always keep your faith in God. You see, faith confesses that the Lord is able. And this is how we are to live our lives. Not recklessly, but with confidence in the Lord. We don't demand that God do what we want. We simply trust the Lord and we make ourselves available to him. And then we will see opportunities for the Lord to be at work in our lives. The second thing that faith does is it not only dares, it sees. And so Jonathan proposes a sign to know whether God wanted them to venture over to the Philistines. We see this in verses 8 through 10. Now, we have to be careful here. Because we don't know exactly what Jonathan was thinking if the Lord had spoken to him, we don't know exactly what's going on here. And so I don't suggest that you begin to run your day by throwing out phrases. If God wants me to go to work, my alarm will go off. My alarm doesn't go off and I don't hear it, he doesn't want me to go to work. Right? If God wants me to eat, I'll open the fridge and there'll be macaroni in there. But if there's no macaroni, God doesn't want me to eat. That's not the way to live your life. I would like us to look at what Jonathan says less like some sort of magic totem and more like a prayer. What he's saying is, we have an opportunity here. Jonathan's not a dummy. He says that's the perfect place for a surprise attack. The rocks have a narrow area it's hemmed in. Their numbers won't be as useful. They're not expecting us. They think we're hiding in holes. I'm one of the few guys that's got a sword. We can make this surprise attack. I think it will work, but I would like to see if the Lord is with us in this. And so we praise, Lord, give me an opportunity, and I'll seize it. And so the Philistines respond by mocking. It's obvious they have no respect for the Israelites. And their language is like something out of um, a high school football field. Come on over here. We got something to show you. Come on. And you can just imagine the laughter. And then you know what they probably do is they probably go back to playing the Philistine version of poker. Or Yahtzee or something, depending on whatever Philistines play. They're, they're, in, the, they're in the camp. They're, they're not... They don't give any thought at all to Jonathan or his armor bearer. That's obvious by what happens next. But Jonathan sees an opening for his faith. Jonathan notices that faith spurs on to great action. It doesn't make him passive. Oftentimes, this is another misunderstanding we have about faith. We think that if we are to have great faith, we can do nothing. We just must sit and wait for God to drop things in our lap. Because if we have enough faith, God will do that. But that's not how faith works. You see, faith gives us the confidence to attempt great things for God. To know that God is on our side. And that we must be eager. So think about for a moment evangelism. I will tell you that the Bible teaches that God is in charge of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah tells us. And that 
A person comes to salvation by the work of the Holy Spirit, renewing their heart and giving them a mind that can understand and a heart that can beat with love for the Savior. Now you may say, if God's so in charge of salvation, then I don't have to do anything. I'm just going to stand around and watch God save people. When actually the exact opposite is true. If we believe that, we should be the most active of people in evangelism because we expect God to save people. We expect results. We expect victories when we're following God. We don't stand on the sidelines, and we don't have to worry about failure because we're not in charge of success or failure. God is. It's not your problem. That's God's problem. Get to work. Now, It's not every time that whatever we hope and desire, we obtain. Remember, Jonathan says, it may be. But unless we trust the Lord, unless we make ourselves available to Him, we will not see Him work in our lives. Let's now turn briefly to the second example. The example of Saul showing the foolishness of formality, that is, of a formal religion. And it begins with the foolish choices that Saul begins to make. Saul looks up and he sees what the Lord is doing. The sentries in the Israelite camp are finally awake. They didn't see Jonathan take off. But now they can't miss the Philistines. Because there's all sorts of panic, all sorts of chaos going on on the other side. And the text gives us a very vivid picture of what's going on here. In verse 16, it says, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And that word dispersing actually means melting. The army is melting away before them. Now, the army, has, the army of Israel hasn't even got going yet. This is Jonathan, an armor bearer, some people in the camp, and some people coming out of the hills. The Philistines are in real trouble. Saul has no idea what's going on. He has no idea what he's supposed to do, but he knows he's supposed to be in charge, and he's supposed to be the one getting the credit. And so what he does is, what you expect in the, in the book the direction book for kings of Israel, under what do I do at the beginning of a battle, it says, ask God what he wants you to do. And one of the ways you could do that is get the ark. And so immediately Saul says, bring the ark in here. And this is a ridiculous sight. You have to understand, you have a rejected king whom God has told he is not going to speak to. And who the prophet of God has said, you will be without the word of God. And the rejected king has the rejected priest bring the ark, and he actually thinks he's going to get an answer. Don't work that way. Now, one of the things we know is that this is just a formality that Saul is going through, and we understand this because of what happens. Because as the ark is on its way, The noise in the Philistine camp is getting bigger. And Saul realizes, if I'm going to get some credit about this, if we're going to get involved, we got to go now. And he looks at the priest and he says, ah, never mind. We're going to go. Withdraw your hand. Never mind. The thing about the ark, they can wait. Now think about it. If Saul was really of a mind that he had to hear from the Lord and that he had to have the ark and that he would not take a step unless God was with him, would he have said, never mind? 
But that's exactly what he does. So you have to see this in the context. Saul is doing this for show. He wants you to think he's godly. He wants you to think he's leading. But he's not. He hasn't been seeking the Lord. He's been sitting under a tree. Now, there is a context to what is happening here at this point. Verse 23 tells us in bold letters, the Lord has saved Israel. You have to get the picture. Jonathan and his armor bearer have started a riot. The Philistines don't know what to do. They're attacking each other with the swords. But Saul still doesn't get it. And the next section highlights this. Look at the verse after verse 23. Verse 23 tells us the Lord saved Israel. And in verse 24 we read, The men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Now that should sound familiar. We saw that in chapter 13 and verse 6. And it was the Philistines coming after the Israelites. They were hard-pressed because, you remember, there were so many Philistines. They didn't know what they were going to do. But now here we have the Israelites. They're not hard-pressed by the Philistines. They're hard-pressed by Saul. What do you mean? Because Saul makes this foolish choice for his own stature, and he begins to turn deliverance into distress. He takes this completely unnecessary oath. He says, no one will eat today until what? I am avenged on my enemies. There's no word of the Lord there. There's no word about Israel there. This is all about Saul getting what he wants and he deserves. And no one will eat anything. And it doesn't make any sense. It incapacitates the army. Now, he could have said something like, don't sit down to an eight-course meal. Right? Keep pursuing the enemy. But don't eat anything? You know what's going to happen. We see it in just a bit. The army is, you can imagine if it was a cartoon, the tongues would be dragging down to the ground. They could barely walk. They're so exhausted because they haven't had anything. It's also an ungodly oath because he invokes a curse on Israelites for failing him, not God. So it's ungodly. And the truth is, Saul is more concerned about the visible than about God. He seems to be taking all of his religious actions, but in reality, he has no heart at all for God. And so he's beginning He's becoming more and more reckless. He says, bring out the ark. Oh, wait, never mind. Oh, you will obey me. This is how we're going to do this. But the worst part of this foolishness is that it persists in the stubbornness. Now, Jonathan doesn't hear the oath. We see this in verse 27. And so... Jonathan comes along this honey on the ground. Now, you can imagine all the Israelite soldiers. Have you ever had the opportunity in your house where dessert gets done first and is set out on the counter and all the kids kind of come around like this and they look at it and they try to smell it and they want to be... And you say, no, that's for after dinner. And they give you that look like, I'm going to die unless you give me that dessert. Right? That's, that's the picture you should have of these Israelite soldiers. They're walking, oh no, we know we can't have it, but we really want it. 
And Jonathan just walks right up. Dip. Wow, this is great. This is like five-hour energy three times over. And they all look at him and they go, well, you know, you didn't hear your dad. Your dad said no one's supposed to eat anyone until he is avenged on his enemies. And so Jonathan here understands the difference. He looks at them and he says, my father has troubled the land. There's no reason he should have done this. Our victory is incomplete because of him. You see, Jonathan sees by faith, and he even sees the short-sightedness of his father. Now, there are also unintended consequences. And this also happens to us whenever we try to put up a show of religion. The unintended consequences here are that the people begin then to eat the meat in a way contrary to God's command. So they're trying to keep Saul's command, and when they do that, they violate God's command. Do you see why it's so dangerous for us to put up our own rules, our own regulations? Because what winds up happening in an unintended consequence is we cause people to stumble and to violate the law of God. And so Saul, he sees this. And it's almost as if if he's saying to the guy next to him, I, I can fix this. Don't worry about this. I got this. Bring Quick, quick, quick. Bring a stone up. Bring a stone up. We'll, we'll make an altar and we'll tell everybody to do it here and it'll all be good like nothing ever happened. Again, he's trying to be the hero. But what he doesn't see is that he's the problem. It's his actions that have caused this to happen. And rather than simply saying, you know what? I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Now those are three of the hardest sentences for anyone to ever say, aren't they? And if you don't think so, you've never really had to say that to someone. But once you do that, you can get past it, can't you? But if you don't, if you try to manipulate circumstances, if you try to say certain things, put up a certain image, you have to keep that up over and over and over and over again. And the weight of that is unbearable. That's what Saul is experiencing here. Saul continues on because he wants to be seen as religious. And then what he does is one final act of stubbornness. He wants to play the part of Joshua. That's where we saw the casting of lots outside Jericho when Joshua was told to determine who had sinned by keeping some of the plunder from Jericho. So you can almost imagine Saul. Remember, he's taller than everyone. Looks every part of the king. And he says, we're going to find out why God won't answer me. Now, if Samuel was there, there'd be another verse that would say, well, Saul, he's not answering you because I told you he wouldn't answer you because of all the things you've done. But again, Saul says, no, 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 it's not me. It's got to be someone else. And so let's make it easy to find out. First, we'll clear my good name, and, and of course, Jonathan should be with me. So it's Jonathan and me and everybody else. And you know Saul is expecting everybody else to get picked. You know it. Could you imagine the look on his face when he and Jonathan are picked? And then he doesn't know what to do. And then Jonathan is chosen. And then the question is, what did you do? And in reality, Jonathan's done nothing. I think you have to hear Jonathan's response with just a tad of sarcasm. What did you do? Oh, look at me. I ate the little bit of honey. Kill me now. I mean, you you almost have to hear it that way. 
It's so ridiculous. I want you to see into Saul's heart here. He's so bent on keeping up appearances, he says, absolutely, I'm going to kill you. Now think about that. What kind of father is ready to kill his son for saving the nation? Someone who is, who is wrapped up in themselves and can't see anyone else at all. What this tells us is when the form of religion takes root in our hearts, there is no telling where it will go to. Brothers and sisters, the Lord does not want you to make sure other people around you know you are spiritual. The Lord wants you to know Him and to serve Him. That's what real faith is. It serves the Lord in spite of whatever circumstances are before it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that you have given to us. We are so grateful that you speak to us of faith and you call us to faith and you empower us by the work of your Holy Spirit. There is none like you, O Lord. So we ask that this word would take deep root in our hearts and that it would bear fruit 100-fold in our lives and in the lives of others around us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.